Chapter Thirty Two of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two, A Dream. Come and see who we've got here," wrote my uncle, not quite grammatically, but the relatives are enough to puzzle anyone who has not had Latin antecedents. If, on the strength of good spirits, I may venture upon a very ancient joke. I knew who it was. There could be no suspense or doubt. With those very brief words of his came a little note, in the hand that always made my hand shake. "'Darling Kit,' it said, "'I'm so sorry to hear of your long and fearful illness, but thank God you are getting better now, and will soon be as well as ever, I do hope. I cannot tell you what has happened till you come, for it would only excite and worry you. It really seems as if there was something always to keep us from one another, but we must try to get over it, my dear.' and if we keep our trust in a good providence, we shall. Your uncle is the kindest of the kind to me, and I am ever so much better, though I only came last night. I feel that I could wander all day in these lovely gardens, with the blossoms and the birds, and be as happy and as free from care as they are. But I am not to stay here, as your uncle thinks it better that I should have two pretty rooms at Widow Cutham's which are to be let very reasonably indeed, and I mean to write to ask my father for the money. You must not come back one day sooner on account of my being here. Mind that, or I should be very angry with you. This is not because I do not long to see you, for you know better than that, dear Kit, but because I want you to get quite well, which is a great deal more to me than my own health, and so it always should be if people love one another. Give my best regards to your aunt, Miss Parslow and tell her that I love dogs quite as much as she does, and I once had a dear little dog of my own, but he was taken from me. Now mind what I say, for I will be obeyed, at any rate until I have to swear to the contrary, which is never carried out by the ladies nowadays. My dear, dear, I shall be afraid to look at you. They tell me you are so different from what you were, and I get long wrinkles up and down my forehead if I ever allow myself to think of it and though I try not to do it, it will come back again. But never mind, you will be as strong as ever when you have a good kiss from your own kitty. Well, I call that something like a true love letter, my Aunt Parslow said when she had contrived almost to compel me to show it to her, which I did not feel sure that I had any right to do. That's a true woman, though I never saw her. She thinks of you ten times as much as of herself, and no man can pretend to say that he repays it, even when he happens to deserve it, which has never happened to any gentleman I knew. You write, and you talk, and you go on with fine words, till people who listen to you believe that you mean to give up your own ways altogether. And perhaps you do believe it at the time, for you never know your own minds at all. But about three days of it, that's all there is. I know it from friends of my own, though, thank God, I had sense enough never to try it myself. And then it is, Mary, could you fill my pipe? It would be so sweet, dear, if you did it. Or, Louisa, I must have left my handkerchief upstairs. Did you happen to notice where I put it, dear? And she is fool enough to run for it and kisses him on the bottom step, and her life is a treadmill afterwards. Your kitty is quite of that sort, mind. I can see it in every word she writes. Well, Aunt Parslow, and you would have been the same if any gentleman had had the luck to offer you upon his altar. I believe I should, 
She answered with a snap at first, and then she smiled slowly and said, No doubt I should, Kit, but try to be no worse than you can help with her. If anything can rouse a lover's indignation, and there are too many things that do so, such a calm assumption of levity and ferocity is the first to set it boiling. What are you thinking of? I asked, without even adding, Aunt Parslow. I am pleased to see you in that state of mind, she continued, when gratitude alone preserved me, without even a half-glance at her twenty thousand pounds from the murderous speech that was on my tongue. But you are very young, Kit. You will come to know better when you have had enough of this sweet kitty. Enough very soon becomes too much. And then what do you do? You neglect them, and think that you are very good indeed if you do no worse. Miss Parslow was not at all a spiteful woman, even too much the other way, if that can be, and of such things she could have no experience because she had never risked it. But, being deeply hurt, I said, You know best. She turned back to the house, with all her dogs at her heels, for none of them cared a bit for the air of heaven in comparison with her own food and footstools. And I rather hoped that she would come out and say, You have been very rude to me. Get back you to Sunbury. Being in a fine large frame of mind, though the frame was too large for its contents, I trow, what did I do but pull out my kitty's letter and began to read it all again, just as if every word of it were not in my heart already, but it adds sometimes to the satisfaction of the heart to be assured once more by the eyes and brain that they knew what they were doing when they brought it the good news. The valley of the mole was very lovely in this flush of the fair springtide, Bend after bend, bud after bud, tint upon tint, all as soft to the eye as the sense of them is to the spirit within, with the twinkle of a sun stealing through them shyly, as a youth in the morning of his love quivers as he glances at the beauty of his maiden. All these delights double their enchantment to the weak, as the lights of heaven multiply when the eyes are full of tears. Jupiter, who was the greatest light at least of the earth to Miss Parslow, ran up and sniffed at me and said, Look out, as clearly as the dog of a most observant and genial writer has learned to say it up to the last advices. And after him came his mistress, no longer didiatic, but deprecative. The beauty of woman is that they change so rapidly. Who does not love a kaleidoscope? I have been thinking over your affairs, she said that she might seem consistent, and I find my first opinion quite confirmed. The moment I knew what your condition was, I said, as you must remember, Kit, there is only one thing to do, and the sooner we get it done, the better. I will not place myself under any obligation to Mr. Henderson, though I feel that he has behaved very well in not coming over to bother me. I have sent down and ordered the fly with a pole. I forget what they call it. I dare say you know. And I have ordered the green room to be got ready. She must not think at all of her complexion in the glass. It will be as bright as ever when she gets downstairs. I have no idea what you mean, Aunt Parslow, but you must not be put out because I was always slow. And they talk of the masculine mind. Oh, dear, any girl of your age would have known in a second. There is such a place as Leatherhead, isn't there now? Beyond a doubt. And you, the first lady in it? Very well. And there is such a place as Sunbury and a road between them, though not at all a good one. Well, then, at Leatherhead there is a young man, crotchety, grumpy, 
whatever you like to call him, but horribly stubborn and possessed with one idea. And at Sunbury there is a young lady to be found, very little better, I dare say, and possessed with the same idea, only upside down as women are supposed to see everything. They have got it into their stupid heads that they cannot live without one another. It would cost more to take the young man to her, and perhaps he would never come back again. It is cheaper to fetch the young lady to him, though it can't be done under a guinea, and the fly with two horses will start in half an hour. I told her she was the best woman in the world, and she answered that I was a hypocrite, yet seemed pleased with my hypocrisy. Then we had a debate whether Kitty would come, in which I maintained the negative, for the sake of being convinced, not against my will. "'You are a perfect stoop,' said my aunt with sound judgment. "'You don't know what a woman is, half so well as Jupiter, not to talk of affection or any of that stuff. A woman thinks ten times as much as a man does of the wickedness of wasting money.' If I went myself, she would think I came for a drive, and her conscience would be easy. If I sent one horse, she would hesitate a great deal, if she did not want to come. But when she sees two horses in an empty carriage, do you think she would let the man get all the money for nothing? It would take four horses going the other way to prevent her jumping in and saying, Well, I suppose I must. I shall write her a very pretty note, of course. You had better not be well enough to send anything but your love. I was only afraid that Uncle Corney might take it as rather a slur upon him to have his new visitor stolen like this, but Miss Parslow, who was always extremely desirous to have her own way when her mind was made up, declared that she would make that all right with him, and so she did by reasoning which I did not try to penetrate, and which she put vaguely in her note to him, for it was something about clothing and deficiency of wardrobe which men cannot understand and are impressed with readily when the duty of paying for it falls on someone else. Not that I intend to pay, said Miss Parslow in confidence to me, though my uncle was led by her letter to a contrary conclusion. But my credit is good in Leatherhead. I shall get a few things of becoming style and tone for her, and have the bill made out to Professor Fairthorne. Messrs. Flounce and Furbelow may have only got one window, but they get their goods direct from Paris, and I see from their circular they expect a large consignment of very chaste articles, and the latest mode to-morrow. It will be most fatiguing at my time of life, but if I like the girl as I know I shall, I can scarcely refuse her the benefit of my judgment.' "'I think I shall go down the hill a little way "'and see what they've got in the window now,' "'I answered, for the two horses now "'had been gone for some four hours, "'and then I shall know the old stuff "'if they attempt to mix it with the latest mode. "'You can scarcely be too sharp in these little places. "'It is not that they want to cheat anybody, "'and they would rather not do it for a native, "'but I should just like to see how much they have got now. Uh, "'There is a fine view from the pavement there.' You can see right into Middlesex and even Berkshire, I'm told, when the day is unusually fine. But I never knew it fine enough to see five miles. You might as well go and play with the dogs, my dear. To play with the dogs was very well in its way, and had lightened many a listless hour, when the body was slack for its to and fro of action, and the mind could take no food except as a dog bites grass. 
and the tricks of the doggies, their sprightly flashing eyes and perception of one's meaning almost before it knew itself, as well as their good nature and enjoyment of a joke, and readiness to time their wits by the slower pulse of mine, take it as I would or might, here was always something to teach me that one is not every one. But I could not see the beauty of this lesson now. Selfish love had got me by the buttonhole, and there never is much humor in the tale he tells. It is all about himself and the celestial one who sent him, and he is so much in earnest that he cannot bear a laugh. Even the crinolines in the little narrow window of Messrs. Flounce and Company, where they had to hang alternate, one high and one low, not to poke each other's ribs, although they reminded me of what I had seen in church, suggested it without a single smile to follow, for my mind, in the reverence of love, was able to people them with the sacred form inside. And yet at any other time I must have laughed, recalling as it did the ingenuity of ladies, who contrived in our narrow pews to reconcile their worship of a higher power with that of their own frocks, and the ladies who now go limp may be glad, when fashion comes round in its cycle, to remember how their mothers made the best of it. Each lady alternate stood on a high hassock, each lady intermediate upon the church boards, and so their cages underlapped or overlapped each other, and when it came to kneeling one could hear them all contract. They were quite as clever women then in balloons as those who end in serpents now. Vainly I looked down the hill, and vainly back of the crinolines. The only way to get the thing desired is to leave off hoping for it. When the sun was gone and the silver mist was gliding like a slow worm up the vale, and all the good people of Leatherhead had lit their pipes and come out to talk, I went back slowly to Valley View, with many a futile turn of head, and ears too ready to be deceived. But the only wheels I heard were those of the fishmonger's cart going quite the wrong way, for I knew that he had been with a middle cut of salmon to the hospitable gate of Miss Parslow. "'You had better go to sleep. Here is Betty nearly wild,' my aunt cried as she pushed me in. "'That blessed butcher has only just sent the lamb, and the boy let it fall in the middle of the road. I hope to goodness she won't come for two hours. If she does, she will want sandwiches, and there is nothing in the house to make them of. Go and lie down, Kit. Don't you see you are in the way?' What a lucky thing I told the man to rest the horses for at least two hours at the flower-pot. When he gets into the tap, he's pretty sure to make it four. You look as white as a ghost, poor boy. Bother that love, it spoils everybody's dinner. I haven't got a bit of appetite myself, and the first bit of salmon for the season except one. Go in, get in, lie down there and roll. Why, you couldn't even tell where to find the mint." This was all the sympathy I got in my distress, and when she had poked me into the little room or lobby with a horsehair sofa, where to roll meant to roll off, she locked me up as if I had been a pot of jam, and all I could hear was the rattle of the dripping pan or the clink of the plates in the warmer. It was worse than useless to repine, so I turned my back to everything and went to sleep. In sleep, as it has been said of old, the fairest and sweetest gifts of heaven descend upon helpless mortals. Then alone is a man devoid of harm and gone back to his innocence, and the peopling of his mind is not an array of greed and selfishness. Then only is he far away from malice and corrupting care and small impatience of the wrongs, 
which only sting when they strike himself, and bitter sense of having failed through the jealousy of others, and only then, if his angel still returns, though seared and scouted, does he know the taste of simple joys and smile the smile of childhood. What wonder, then, that his father comes with returning love to him while he sleeps? Then, if the greatest gift of God to man that he can see and feel while in this lower world of life is that which was the first vouchsafed, the love of one who thinks and tries to make him nobler than herself, though she generally fails in that, how can it come more gently to him than it has came the first time of all, when he has been cast into deep sleep? It seemed to be no time for words, and even thoughts found little room. Without a whisper or a thought, my cheeks were wet with loving tears, and gentle sobs came to my heart, and faithful hands were locked in mine. A sweeter dream never came from heaven, and if sleep were always so endowed, it would be well to sleep forever. End of chapter 32